Amen. For those of you who have been following along, you know that we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, as Paul's custom, Paul was heavy on theology in the first three chapters. And then typically, Paul's method is, is to make a turn, take a turn as the book goes on, and then he deals with more practical matters, and that's just what he did in this book. In chapter 4, he took a turn, and so we looked at issues like, um, uh, beginning in chapter 4, we looked at uh, sexual purity, we looked at brotherly love, we looked at what happens to us when we die, we looked at what will it be like for that generation when the Lord returns. And this time he's, he's uh, delving into practical matters within the body, within the church itself, and how the church functions together. What the apostle wanted, and really what God wanted, and that's why the apostle wrote it, was that every church be healthy. Every church be healthy. And he gives us some guidelines for that in these verses. In fact, um, a church that functions according to God's design will change the world. A church that functions according to God's design will change the world. Well, um, was, it, was, it, um, was it Shakespeare who said, to dance or not to dance, that is the question? It was something like that, right? That <laughs> wasn't exactly that, was it? But that was our question. That was, Faith and I had a question, um, I guess, 25 years ago. So... Um, and again, we were completely surprised by everything, and now we know what we're going to be doing, I guess, today after church. So that's wonderful. But, but 25 years ago, we had a question that we had to deal with, and, and uh, given my background, where I was raised, and where, where a lot of the people that I knew, um, one thing that I wasn't 100% used to when it was time for us to get married was dancing in a wedding. Um, in fact, where I, where I lived as a kid, um, I'd never seen dancing in a wedding um, until, until I was, I don't know, a little bit older. We had some next-door neighbors who were from New York, and they had a wedding, and they invited us and everyone to the wedding, and, um, and, and, and I just remember the, the, the Southerners sitting around the room in this, this, this place that they had rented, and uh, the northerners all boogieing. <laughs> and we, just, we were just kind of uh, gawking at them. We didn't know what to do. It's changed. Where I grew up, it has changed. It is not like that anymore. But that's how it was when I was a kid. So uh, we knew that when it came time for a wedding, that there were certain people who might be coming who didn't think that it was appropriate for Christians to dance. But on the other hand, my wife is from this area. And um, what... What uh, Christians, uh, Christians and everybody else, they dance at weddings. And so there was no issue. And so we struggled back and forth. Uh, what, are we gonna, what are we to do? The Bible says that we need to, as Christians, surrender our liberties for the sake of other believers so that we don't offend them in other ways, in, in any way. And so uh, uh, somehow the plan was hatched to have ballroom dancing. We figured that, that wouldn't offend anybody. And so uh, the night before the, the wedding, uh, at the wedding rehearsal, we had somebody come and teach everyone how to do ballroom dancing. And then the next day, that's, that's, what, that's what happened at the wedding. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are there who are disappointed that we didn't have the other kind of dancing. But, but that's, that's, that's where we went. That's what we did. And so I'm no expert on dancing. Let me tell you that to begin with. But 
the relationship between people in the church and church leaders as well as church people with each other is like a dance. It's like a dance. And um, one of the things that we discovered is that ballroom dancing requires a couple of things. It requires a couple of things. And, and actually, uh, believe me, it requires a lot more than this. I was not very good at it. But here are just a couple of things that, that uh, I took away from that experience that perhaps we can apply to our life together in the church. First of all, it requires some to take the lead and some to follow. It requires some to take the lead and some to follow. We read in verses 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. So in these first two verses that we're looking at, 13 and 14, or, or uh, 12 and 13, Paul is, is trying to explain to these new believers the nature that exists between the church, its leaders, and the rest of the congregation. And so there's, there are three specific things that he mentions for, for Christian leaders. These are three qualities that you should expect from anyone who would serve as a spiritual leader. The number one is to be hardworking. Number one is to be hardworking. He says, they labor among you in verse 12. And this word is used, this word for labor is used for somebody who toils, who works by the, sp- the sweat of their brow. And this should be the congregation's expectation for anyone who would serve in ministry, that they would labor, that they would work hard. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a local pastor uh, from this area who um, Pastor Ken used to tell me about, who he used to be very good friends with. And um, the story that he used to share about this man was that this man was an amazing preacher. This man was an amazing, and still is, he's still alive. He's an amazing people person and an avid golfer. Those were, those were uh, three qualities of this guy. And this guy, ministry was perfect for him. Ministry was perfect for him because he could play all the golf he wanted. And why? Well, because he had a couple of qualities that weren't so good for ministry, and one was disastrous. And the first one was that um, he didn't know the Lord. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was in ministry, but he didn't know the Lord. Do you know that that's possible? I say that to a lot of Christians, and they look at me with shock. But do you know that there are a lot of people who lead churches throughout New England and throughout the world, throughout the country, who don't know the Lord, know they don't know the Lord, and really don't care because they look at it as their occupation. And people who are part of the congregation look at that as part of their occupation. Well, this man was a gifted preacher. He could, and the other negative quality, well, for ministry anyway, was that he probably liked golf more than he liked ministry. So um, he said ministry was a great gig for him. He, he was this incredible speaker, and still is. And um, he... he um, he, he, could, he could wow a room. He had a great personality, magnetic. And so he could just, he could spend all of his week doing whatever he wanted. On Saturday, he could pull together a few words and everyone would walk out on Sunday morning and just be amazed. And he said, everything came to a halt and everything was ruined when he actually came to know Jesus as a savior. <laughs> 
And when he came to know Jesus as a savior, he no longer could live that kind of life anymore. He realized that he had to go to work. Well, this man has gone on to be very prominent. He's he's become a professor. He has a national radio ministry, and he is one of the most gifted servants of Christ in our country today. I'm going to leave his name nameless, but he is a gifted, gifted servant of Jesus Christ. But he said that when he came to know Jesus, his whole plan for his life got ruined, but God gave him a better plan for his life. But it it required a, a different ethic. It required toil. And you should expect that from anyone who would serve as a spiritual leader. They should be, first of all, hardworking. Second of all, sacrificial. He describes a spiritual leader as those who are over you in the Lord. This word over you does uh, mean, it means to, to, to rule or to direct, but, but we have to temper the way that that's used. It's not, in a, it's not in a dictatorial sense. In fact, there's a parental element there. This word is used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 this way. Notice, it's, it's used for the selection of an elder, somebody who would serve as an elder. But look at the quality that an elder must have. The word here for manage is the same word that's used here. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Have this picture of someone who um, leads, but the kind of leadership that is provided is not one that is heavy-handed, but one that is loving, that is parental, that is caring. In fact, um, reminds me of the kind of leadership that that um, George Washington provided when he was commanding the, the, the Continental Army. 1783, March of 1783, the, the, the war was, 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 was now finished. America was its own nation, but we had major problems on our hands. There was a co- conspiracy afoot, called the New, which we call now the Newburgh Conspiracy. People, uh, the, the Congress, I believe it was 1782, had run out of money and stopped paying the army. And the, the soldiers were angry and the officers were angry. Here they were toiling, here they won a war, and they weren't being paid. And they were afraid that the Congress wasn't going to make good on the other promises that they had made about a future pension and so on. And so um, letters, anonymous letters were written that started to circulate among the officers calling for a mutiny against the Congress. Well, George Washington caught word of this. And so uh, on March 15th, 1783, he called for his field officers to gather together and, and uh, have a discussion about this. But one of, the, one of the things that was assumed by this meeting was that, John, uh, that, uh, that George Washington himself wasn't going to be there. Well, all of the officers were very surprised after they had gathered together to notice that George Washington entered the gathering. And there, George Washington took the floor and he made an impassioned speech for unity. For them to continue on recognizing the great victories that they had won and the honor that they had kept. But as he looked into the eyes of the, of the officers there, he noticed that they looked at him differently than they had before. No longer did they have the same kind of respect that he once enjoyed from them. And so um, af- after his spe- speech was over, he, he took out a letter that he wanted to read from Congress. But in the process of taking out this letter, he started fumbling around in his pocket looking for his reading glasses. 
Now, this was, um, this was a, a, a key component because in those days, for a gentleman to wear reading glasses in public was something that diminished them. It, 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 it made them look weak. It, 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 it brought down uh, the, 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 the lofty honor that they had among other people. And so this is what he said. He said, forgive me for putting on my spectacles as I have nearly gone blind in service to my country. And when George Washington said those words, the officers who were there saw him, saw his life, saw his sacrifice, saw his dedication, saw what he did, and they began to weep. They began to weep because they understood the kind of leadership that he gave. It was a sacrificial kind of leadership. And then that day, they pledged their loyalty to the Congress instead of staging a mutiny. And we have this picture. We have this example of this kind of sacrificial leadership. And congregation ought to expect that from her leaders. And then thirdly, we see loving correction. Loving correction. It says they admonish you in verse 12. There are two elements of this loving correction. It, it is to counsel and warn uh, particular behaviors and attitudes. That's what it means to admonish. That's the job of a spiritual leader. That's what a spiritual leader is expected to do. But it's important that the intentions of the spiritual leader must always be good and for the benefit of the person that, they are, that they're dealing with. They, they should never be, again, heavy-handed. Spiritual leaders should never lead in that way. In fact, it says in Colossians 1.28, this, this is the, this is the goal of, of any, every interaction of a, of, a, of a godly spiritual leader and those that God has put under his charge in him or him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom why that we may present everyone mature in Christ as we live our lives that's what we have to keep in mind keep in focus that one day we're going to stand together as God's people before the Lord and when we stand together as God's people before the Lord what kind of people do we want to be we want to be a mature people we want to be a, a people that reflect Jesus that our lives are conformed to the image of Jesus, and that is the goal of every godly leader. And this is how God calls every spiritual leader to be, and that's what you have the right to expect from those that God has placed in positions of leadership. But I have to tell you this last thing. Admonish you. That is the hardest thing. I think that is the hardest thing about being in ministry, is when you have to... Um, when you have to warn about particular behaviors or attitudes. Um, I remember I have a, I have a friend who, um, we were graduating from, from college at the same time, and, and as anybody who, who wants to go into ministry, all you do when you're young is you think and dream. What will the, what will the congregation be like that God has me a part of? What will, what will the future hold? What great things will God do through that ministry? I remember as we were talking together, this friend of mine, he said, we were talking about our different gifts, and I asked him, well, so what do you think your gifts are? He says, well, I know what my chief gift is. I said, what's that? He said, I have the gift of confrontation. <laughs> I thought, oh, boy. You know, how, you know how long he lasted in ministry? Six months. It's six months tops. Now, he's gone on to be very successful in the business world. But ministry, he lasted six months because he believed that he had the gift of confrontation and this is, one of the, this is one of the hardest pieces of this whole thing when spiritual leaders must do this. But there's a purpose that every person might be presented mature in Christ. That's our desire. That's our goal. That's what, that what, that's what has to be the goal of every, 
every um, Christian who serves the Lord and wants to serve in leadership. We read in, in um, I believe it's Psalm 78, it says that God took David from the sheep pens and he took him to serve him among his people. And it says, he served God with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. And these are the, these are the qualities that, that God expects of those who would serve him as spiritual leaders. This is what the church has a right to expect from those who would serve him in this way. But also he tells us that, that the congregation has a responsibility as well. He says that, that they are to be treated with respect. Um, probably a better translation would be what the New King James has. Be recognized. To be recognized. Rather than necessarily respect. He gets into those issues later. But, but need to recon- recognize leadership. That's, that's probably what the word means. Now what's the, what's the reason why Paul would say, first of all, you have to recognize your spiritual leaders? Well, you have to remember, this church was started by Paul, right, and Silas, and they go into the city, they preach the gospel, and God changes hearts, and he does amazing things, and then all of a sudden the city goes into an uproar, Paul and Silas are kicked out of the city, and now you have this new fledgling city, this new fledgling church, and for a little while they had Timothy there with them, but you have this new fledgling church, and they had these amazing spiritual leaders, and now who has to take their place? The, 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 the local guys, have to take their place. And you know, you know what the Lord said, a prophet is without honor, what, in his hometown. And the first thing that he wants them to do is he wants them to recognize the ones who God has placed as spiritual leaders in their midst. They, they would prefer to have Paul. They would prefer to have the, the superstar Silas. But instead, Paul wants them to recognize the ones that God has given them. And then he says to esteem them very highly in love. And, and again, probably the NIV's hold them uh, is a better translation. Hold them very highly in love. This, um, this, this word here, very highly, means, means immeasurable. Um, it's used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I like how the New Living Translation captures it. It says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power to work within us to accomplish infinitely more. That's the same, same word. Infinitely more than we might ask or think. What is he saying? That, that on the part of the congregation there needs to be a love for those who serve in spiritual leadership that, that, that knows no bounds. That's what he means. Now I have to tell you, I have to tell you, that this is what we've experienced from this church over the last 17 years. I would say that if there was ever a model of this kind of love, it is here. It is among you. You have treated us with such love. You have, the, the years, the years, the 17 years have gone by so quickly, sometimes it's hard for me to believe. I remember when, um, when, when I first started in ministry, I could not imagine being in a place more than four years. But the years, the 17 years almost in September, the years have gone by so quickly. And the reason for that is because you are a model of the things that we're reading about here. Not because, not because somehow, you know, everybody's been sitting around reading um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and saying, okay, we have to do this, we have to do this. No, it's because, because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. 
And as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in you, you have shown this. This is part of the fruit of your life. This is part of the fruit of your ministry. You have made it a pleasure. You have made it a blessing. I I cannot imagine being among a people that is sweeter and more special than this congregation. I want you to know that. Sometimes, you know, it's our responsibility to admonish, right? But other times it's our responsibility to tell the truth about the good things that God has done. And you, you have been a blessing to us. You have been a blessing to us every day. And uh, this surprise that you gave us today um, is more proof of that. And so I want to thank you. One of the important things that Paul wants us to know is that, um, that the reason we do this isn't to put anybody on a pedestal. Because as soon as we put a person on a pedestal, they're going to fall. Right? He doesn't want the congregation to put church leaders on a pedestal because as soon as that happens, you'll be disappointed. In that culture, people were given esteem or held in high esteem because of their, the amount of money they had or the status that they had, the honor that they had in the culture. But notice, notice why Paul says that they should do this, why the congregation should do this in relationship with these spiritual leaders. He tells us in verse 13, what? Because of their work, for the sake of the gospel, because there are men and women around us who don't know the Lord, and the church is God's instrument to take the gospel to all the world, and as a result of this common goal that we have as a people, it's critical that we learn to dance with one another well, learn to love each other, In fact, he goes on, he says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. This is a critical component for this to happen, for for this congregation to to love one another as a a result of this this, uh, incredible work that God has given us to accomplish with each other. And so the first thing we notice, we're trying to ballroom dance, is that it requires some to lead and some to follow. But also our focus must be on the other person, right? Our focus can't be on ourselves. If our focus is on ourselves, we're going we're gonna to trip all over them and trip all over us. And so we, he's answering the question, what is the nature of the relationship between each one of us and one another? We read in verses 14 and 15, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to one, and to everyone. So he gives us some qualities. And by the way, we, we are running through a laundry list, right? Paul is famous for this. Some scholars call this his, his grocery list. Uh, sometimes when Paul gets into those very practical se- sections of the books, he goes one thing after another, after another, after another, but they're all important. And, and so the first thing that we notice that is necessary if we're going to dance well together as a congregation is single-mindedness. He says, admonish the idol. So not only is admonishing a responsibility of the spiritual leaders, it's actually a, it's something that, that is important that all of us do. Now, what is, he, what is he referring to when he says admonish the idol? A lot of people read this, and what he, they think what he's saying is, is that, that there were lazy people in the church that they needed to get to work and that they needed to admonish them. That's kind of true, but not true completely. So... To understand what's going on here, we kind of have to understand the background of what it was like living in ancient Rome, ancient Greece. 
And um, in, in various cities, there were patrons. And we discussed this uh, a few weeks ago, but there were, various, there were patrons in different cities, and they were wealthy people, and they wanted their way in the assembly. And so what they would do is they would pay citizens to vote the way that they wanted to vote on certain issues. They would pay other people to show up at their door every morning and greet them. This gave them status in the community. It made them look great. It, it helped them exercise their power. And so there were certain people probably within the congregation who were taking money from these patrons. And as a result of taking money from the patrons, it did lead to them not having to work because Greeks despise manual labor. It, it led to them not having to work. But on the other hand, it was a, it was, there was a quid pro quo. They, they had to vote in a way that would please the patron. Well, often uh, the patrons, uh, the, the things that they wanted to advance in the culture and the society was at odds with, with what was good for the kingdom and for the congregation. And so you had certain people there that were taking handouts, and as a result of the handouts they were taking, it was compromising their faith and their walk with Christ. And so he says, admonish the idol. We need to make sure that every believer has a, has a coherent worldview so that everything that we do comes as a result of what we believe in Christ. So you can imagine, you can imagine what was going on here. Paul wanted these Christians to be independent of, of any control from anyone outside of the church in terms of the way that they thought or the way that they acted on matters because he didn't want the kingdom to be jeopardized in the process. And so for Christians to live this way, what do we need? We need to have a coherent worldview. You know that God made all things. God made the heavens and the earth. And because God made the heavens and earth, everything revolves around God. And what God calls us to do as Christians is to look at everything that we do in light of his word in the way that he wants us to live. And so that as Christians, we are to have a coherent worldview, and God wants us to look at everything from the vantage point of what is best for him and his kingdom and his son. And so if anything that should uh, gain our allegiance in our life or call us to itself, that, that pushes God to the periphery, we need to push that away. And if there's anything that causes us to be compromised, we need to push that away so that we follow him, so that our, our thinking and our way of living are both in concert with one another. And so he says, admonish the idol. Make sure that no one is, no one is being compromised by, by the things that they're taking or the relationships that they're building. Secondly, compassion. He says, this is, a, this is a second element of our relationships with each other. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. This word here for encourage was used um, of Mary when she was consoled in the loss of her brother Lazarus in John eleven thirty one. And why, why do they need to encourage the faint-hearted? Well, the Christians there were, were discouraged. Many of them were discouraged. We know that some had already died since Paul had left. Uh, we know that they were undergoing persecution, and probably some were ready to give up. And so he said, I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. It's really important. It's really important, and we need to remember this. It's really important that we never make decisions that will affect the rest of our life when we find ourselves in the dumps. Do you believe that? That's when we make disastrous decisions. There's one story, um, I've used it before, I've told it before, but I think that this is just illustrates it so well, so forgive me for sharing it again, but we have, we have, a, we have a man in our congregation who is a former police officer. And he was, 
and, and everybody's like, oh, okay, I know who that is. All right. So, um, but anyway, he was, he was out, he was out on, on patrol, and uh, all of a sudden, something came through uh, and, and here in the cruiser that there was, there was a young person on a bridge. And uh, so he was the closest police officer. He sped to the scene. The young lady was on the bridge, and he uh, was able to make his way to her, and he reached through the fence, and he grabbed hold of her clothes. And then one by one, he pulled her all the way across the bridge, all the way around the fence, and he's able to bring her to safety. And she didn't jump that day. And he was careful to share his faith with her and continue to build a relationship with her. So that I think a year or two ago, that young lady got married. And when she got married, who did she ask to walk her down the aisle and give her away? But that police officer who saved her life. So often we can make disastrous decisions that will affect the rest of our life when we find ourselves in discouraging circumstances. And one of the things that we as Christians need to do is when we find others who are in that situation, when they're discouraged, when they're down, when they're broken, one of the fundamental ministries that we can have in their lives is to encourage them, urge them to keep on because we know that the Lord is at work. He is a, he is a God who works in the, in the midst of, of uh, everything that we face. Another quality that we show to each other's generosity says help the weak. Remember these these Christians, um, the, the early church, many of them were, were either slaves or former slaves. And the Romans didn't want someone who was poor to, to rise out of their poverty. They wanted to keep them where they were. But, but, but Paul doesn't want the church to play by those rules. He says, help the weak. This word for weak is used in the sense of somebody who is extremely poor. Uh, we see an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What God wants us to do, if we find somebody in a situation where they are struggling, we find someone in a situation where we can help them in one way or another. Uh, whether it's generosity with our time, generosity with our talents, generosity with, with what God has blessed us with, with materially, whatever it is, we want, to, we want to help to lift other people out of that situation so that they can effectively serve the Lord. We also notice grace. We need to show grace to each other. He says, be patient with them. We need to give others room to grow. In light of everything that he says about admonishing, encouraging, and helping, we need to recognize that different people are at a different place in their lives and, and different people um, uh, are, are, are different stages of growth. And, and no matter where we are and no matter what situation we're in, we need to be patient with each other. And finally, we need to show forgiveness. He says, never seek revenge. Notice verse 15, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to every one. I know I've talked a lot about Roman culture, but it just plays a big part in the background of this whole thing. Honor was hugely important in Roman culture. And, um, and as, a, as a result of that, if somebody was dishonored, they would seek revenge. Revenge was paramount. However, this goes against the whole teaching of Jesus, that we are to never 
show revenge. Notice what Jesus says in Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 31. Jesus says, But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There were Swiss researchers. What they, um, what they did was they, um, they wanted to find out the effects of revenge on a person. So they, they took a, a group of people, they put them in a lab, they had them play some kind of game, and then they had, somehow they had someone else cheat against them in this game. Then they put monitors on their brains. And they asked them to imagine for a moment to exact revenge on those people. They had a minute to exact revenge on the other person. And I'm assuming in, in their minds and, and, and thinking about revenge. And it says that there was a, there was a burst of neur, uh, neurons in the brain and, and there was this, this kind of reward that they received from this particular experiment. And so they, 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 they said that there was this kind of rush that they experienced as a result of, of, of just thinking about revenge on the other person. But the Swiss researchers wanted to go further. They wanted to figure out what the long-term effects of looking to gain revenge against another person will do in a person's life. And so Vanessa Van Edwards, she blogged about this, and she wrote this. She said, even though the first few moments feel rewarding in the brain... Psychological scientists have found that instead of quenching hostility, revenge prolongs the unpleasantness of the original offense. Instead of delivering justice, revenge often creates only a cycle of retaliation. I think most of you know the story about um, Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. They didn't get along. And one time Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd put arsenic in your tea. And Winston Churchill said in response, Lady, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> we, we know, we know that, uh, that revenge does more damage to the person who seeks it than the one that we're seeking it against. Well, just want to make um, a couple of applications. Number one, God is calling us to commit ourselves to each other. God is calling us to continue to learn to dance together in that sense. God didn't design us to be alone. Isolation isn't something that God made us for. And, and you know, one of the things that we know from just anyone who's walked with the Lord long enough, you know this, that God sometimes uses the most difficult people in our lives to do the greatest work in us. They drive us to our knees, Right? So many of our life is difficult. We cry out to the Lord. Lord, what's going on? Help me in this situation. Give me wisdom in this situation. And, and as we go through those moments, as we go through those struggles, we can see how God is drawing us to himself. And he meets our needs in those moments, in those struggles. And he cultivates dependence upon himself. And so it's important, critically important, that we understand that God made us for relationship with each other. This is illustrated in a story by, um, or, or about D.L. Moody, or purported to be about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was kind of the Billy Graham of the 19th century, 
And one time Billy Graham was, or one time uh, D.L. Moody was meeting with, with, a, with a prominent person. And the prominent person said this to D.L. Moody, and let me just get the quote right. He said to D.L. Moody, he said, um, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside it. And so D.L. Moody didn't say anything. And he took, uh, and he noticed that, that, that it was a cold day and there was a warm fire that was burning and, and there were coals on this fire stacked on top of one another. And D.L. Moody just simply went over to one of the coals and he took the coal off of the, off of the stack and he put it by itself next to the stack. And as the rest of the stack continued to burn, the one coal that was left by itself burned out. And when the other man saw it, he said, oh, I understand exactly what you mean. You see, God has designed the church as a way to cultivate our relationship with him. And when we serve him together, that's his means to change the world. In fact, he says that um, in verse 15, he says, See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You see, this isn't just something about the body of Christ. It isn't something that just happens in the church. It's something that extends to the whole world. Second thing we notice is this. And this is, um, this is, uh, this is a quote from Gene Green. He's a New Testament scholar. He said this, We are called to do good to everyone always in every situation. How do you like that? We are called to do good to everyone always in every situation. Paul says it another way. We read it a little bit earlier this morning in our responsive reading. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, when we notice here that this seems quite impossible, doesn't it? How in the world do we live the way that God calls us to live? How do we live peaceably with all? Well, we understand that, first of all, it requires a forgiving heart, right? Every day, we're going to face slights and things that are going to happen that are, it's easy to harbor grudges and it's easy to become angry and it's easy to hold those things in and it's easy to allow those things to drive us in our life. All of the things that we faced and every person in this room, you are going through it, you have been through it. Some seasons have been harder than other seasons, but the reality is that we all know exactly what this is like. It requires a forgiving heart. But if it requires a forgiving heart, it begs the question, how do we forgive someone? How do we forgive someone who's hurt us? Well, it requires a heart that's been forgiven. You see, the way that we will be people who forgive and who will be free to forgive and who will love unconditionally is if we've experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness and his unconditional love for us. As we always say, if God has forgiven me this much, how can I hold against another person this much that they've sinned against me? And this is God's way of changing the world. We, we live in a world full of angry people who have been slighted, who have all kinds of grudges. And imagine we as the people of God, we go out into the world and we don't carry that stuff with us, but we carry with us a, a, a thankful heart knowing that God has forgiven us of all that we have done in our lives. And as a result of that, we can love freely and we can care for others freely and we don't have to live the way the world lives around us and we don't have to let bitterness consume us. 
because we have a God who's forgiven us. And many of you might find it impossible to forgive. I want you to know that if you've been forgiven, if you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, he will empower you to forgive. Whatever it is you hold, those those things that you've undergone, God can give you the power to forgive. He can give you the power to let go. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the joy of the gospel. This is what God does through the gospel. And I hope you've experienced that new life through Jesus because it only comes through him. It is a supernatural work that he does in us for his glory that the world might be changed as they see people who have genuinely been transformed from the inside out as, as we love each other. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you 